what I've given a title and others have called in, in similar fashion, prayer for union and glory or our reunion and glory of that ultimate blessing that, that Christ is, is praying here for. And he says in John seventeen twenty four to 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Technical change here. All right. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see, if you can remember from a couple weeks ago and the week before that as we looked at, at these, this farewell prayer, do you notice and see a difference in Christ's words here, his, his emphasis in what he's saying? Does anything stand out to you? Not particularly the, <clears throat> the words themselves in one sense, but his heart in this. <clears throat> You see more of a declaration of a, I want a very passionate request on behalf of, of, of us, on behalf of those present. This, this forthright request of Christ, it, it carries for us an astounding measure of hope. That right here, right before the agony that we're, we're going to go into in the garden in a bit, before his betrayal, his ultimate death, we hear this foundation and really an emphasis of triumph for a believer, any believer, any true believer. And his goal in this last passage, and, and through his death, of course, will be our passage into the presence of Christ when we face our death or his, his return. And the last thing he asks for, what he desires and wills for us, is that we may be with him not a hopeful wish, you know, not, I really hope this all works out, but no, there's a triumphant hope in that for us. Jesus will receive what he asked for, will he not? He, he has no need to pray, Father, forgive me for my sin. His prayers are already perfect and enhanced with such a perfection and glory and a love, not only for the Father, but for us. And so this particular verse is really of great comfort, great hope, not only for us here and now, but for, I know, many of you, um, for, especially for anyone who's lost a loved one in Christ, that they have this hope now of knowing that they are truly in that intermediate state awaiting their resurrection body to see the Lord while they, they're in his presence in peace. But, but this ultimate blessing that Jesus is praying for for us here is what he himself desires for us is that we'll be with him. Yes, they're, they're all, all, you could say, all the peripheral blessings and glories, no more sin, no more death, no more Satan, right? No more groaning and moaning in this world because of our finite, sin-filled bodies. The prize, what Paul speaks about, that ultimate prize is Christ himself, because with him comes 
all the splendors of heaven, the wedding feast of the Lamb. All of those things are found in him. But you can also hear the sonship aspect in this prayer of Christ praying to the Father as the Son. If you think back in John 14, when he talks about it will be he, the Son, will rightly assume ownership over all the rooms he's prepared for us, right? Not mansions. (laughs) That's a misinterpretation of that verse. Sorry, folks. But rooms that he has ownership for, ownership of, and is preparing for each of us to be in that kingdom presence with him forever. What those rooms look like, I have no idea. He alone does. But he's preparing that place for us, thinking of us already. So is this, you know, is this, is he also your treasure as he treasures us in this prayer? You know, true believers gain so much more in heaven in that first picosecond glimpse of glory. Um, that we could accomplish in, in any extended lifetime here of greatest knowledge, of having accumulating the greatest wealth, having anything that our heart desires. I mean, much like Solomon, what did he say as the wisest man who explored every avenue? Fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Christ is the ultimate goal. He is the ultimate treasure beyond anything in this earth, in this world. But also in this, you can almost hear Christ's great anticipation in this request, what he's longing for. Um, Just to fathom the, the extent and the depth of joy that he has knowing in, in the communication, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, the communication of the divine realities to him and his humanity to know what awaits us in glory, what he's been praying about, that glory that he shared with the Father. Now he's anticipating, just waiting for that joy. I mean, he, he's almost looking, expecting to see Christian's face, that first appearance in heaven when he, he's revealed to Christ. You know, He knows what that joy is going to be like, and he's praying that for us specifically here. And for us, I mean, this should be a compelling prayer for us to pursue him in prayer, in study, in reading, in meditating on the word of God. For we have to continue now on this earth in this time in our finite state to walk by faith, but knowing very well one day, maybe soon, that we will have this eternal sight of Christ before us forevermore. Any thoughts so far on this? Any comments while I take a drink? Definitive statement, yeah, yeah. You know, if things work out for these guys, yeah, it might work out. They'll we'll be together one day. No, those that you've given me, I've kept while on this earth. Now, Father, will you take care of them while I return to you? Because I want them to be where I'm at. Because I know 
what's going to be accomplished, you know, what's going to be fulfilled. Even though what we're going to see here in the, the agony in a minute, it's still a sure thing, you know. Amen. Yeah, there is. But just to see how much he desires um, uh, for us to be with him, there's such a compassion and concern expressed here um, that's going to carry over into Gethsemane too. But he makes this declaration to his Father to grant us not just access into a heavenly realm, but such that we are also going to share in his glory. Whatever the fullness of that glory, we we can't quantify this in our minds right now. But if anything, this should fuel our faith, fuel our passion to to be with him, to know him. Um, One sense of this goes back, if you look back in verse 5 of chapter 17, this great glory that he shared before the world was, that will be the glory we share in. And this magnificence of the love between the Father and the Son, the radiance of that, of what was expressed before the foundation of the world, this is what we're going to share in. I mean, we, we glimpsed this in Isaiah 6. And I'm looking forward to that. We get to that in a few weeks, Lord willing. But not something we can fully grasp right now, but we know it's a sure thing, just as he's prayed that it is a sure thing for us, that that glory is going to be a reality. So for us here, we, we are not just to read and study this prayer of Jesus. We also, in a sense, a very strong sense, to share in this same prayer of seeing this glory, to long for you know, this promise, Lord. Keep this, this reality, this promise ever before me that you have, have saved me, that I may share in this glory with you. Keep me in your power, by your power, right, brother? So keep me in your love. I want to share in this glory with you in one day. It's not just a one-sided request, um, because for us, the the glory of Christ remains. Owen, Owen describes this too. He says, this glory of Christ is too high, too illustrious, too marvelous, marvelous for us to to perceive in our present condition. It has such a splendor and glory too great for our present spiritual visible faculty. But this is the same hopeful groaning in the reality of that glory that Romans 8 talks about. It's what our bodies long for. It's what creation longs for. Creation waiting for the sons to be redeemed so that they may also partake in this glory. But Jesus closes his prayer with a final, really a final survey of his ministry on the earth, of his past ministry, and also looking forward to his future ministry. And he says in verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you, and these have known you, have known that you sent me, and I have made them known to made you known to them. So we hear in in this part of the prayer um, his testifying of that forthcoming single and primary mediatorial function of Christ, what he's about to accomplish on the cross, what he alone is able to accomplish on the cross. And with Christ's knowledge of the Father being immediate and the knowledge that these disciples and we will share is only mediated to us through Jesus Christ and his atoning work, none other but Christ. No one could accomplish this but him. 
And as we go on further into verse 26, Jesus promises to those with him and in confident assurance to all, even in our present age, that this mediatorial work is an ongoing work. It's the reason he sent his Holy Spirit for the conviction of sin, for the sanctification of the sons of God. And then we can see in, in what Jesus is conveying here in the, in the realm of this mediatorial work and the mediated truth to those given to Jesus by the Father, that they are now made right. They are now made righteous by faith in him, right? Being justified, they've come to know his name and the name of the Father and all that that encompasses. If you remember what we looked at as far as what it means by the name of the Father, that they and we have come now to know and to bear his righteousness. And all of this will be done and continued again through the means of the promised Holy Spirit in salvation and in our sanctification. So multiple promises here, deep doctrinal truths and promises revealed here in this prayer. Christ continues, he's also implying here in a very powerful way that those in the world who do not know the Father or the Son are, are in fact and finally wrong. They are not right. They are not righteous. So to see this in a negative aspect for their sin, for their wrongness, they will face the eternally destructive outcome of their wrong. You know, what Christ was going to agonize over, what he was about to face, that will be a reality for those who are not in Christ, who are not made right by his blood and saving faith. So included in this, this ongoing, continued ministry until his final return and Jesus' pastoral priestly farewell prayer to us is is making known the name of the father and in that there is with a promise and affirmation really a purpose clause here for these and all future disciples that from the father's love for the son comes the son's love for the disciples and this becomes their love for one another and that same love reciprocated back to the father now that that righteousness has accomplished its work, we've been redeemed and illuminated to the point of now having his life within us that we can return that love. And in that love, we do what, brother? We obey him. You know? We keep ourselves in that love. Because of that love, we desire to obey him. So what Christ is expressing to us in this closing is that the same theme throughout all of John's narrative, really, that of the reality of the indwelling presence of Christ, the indwelling life of Christ, that resident reality, Jesus being the true vine, we being the branches grafted in, finding our life and our strength and our hope in that abiding. And this indwelling is found in the love of the Father as well, and the Son to us and in us. And what is this love that is expressed by Jesus abiding in us and from us outward to the world? It's what he talks about in John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, right? That one lay down his life for his friends. It's a sacrificial love, giving love and enduring love. And therefore, 
He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Any thoughts? Any comments? Questions? All right. Look into the next chapter, John 18. We're going to take a, a little journey, very solemn, very profound, reverential journey from the side of the Mount of Olives. You guys probably saw this while you're in Israel. Down across the brook Kidron into this garden, this olive grove. John 18 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And now Judas also, this is, this is interesting, it's important. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. John doesn't record Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane but the other three synoptics do. So we're going to mainly focus in Matthew 26, 36 to 46. So if you want to turn there ahead of time, I've got a little bit of introductory material here to consider before we get to the text. But Spurgeon saying of of this account in Matthew 26, he says, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It's a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation and more than for human language. Yet we are to learn from this true story. That's why it's present in the Gospels. We must learn from it precisely so that we too may be moved by prayer, prayerful awe, prayerful worship of our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I pray as preparing this that the Lord would give us his spirit of grace and supplication to rightly look upon him whom we all have pierced. So before we read these narratives, I've always got to ask the question why. Why would this be included in the scriptures? For us to peer into this very time of great agony, supplication, or for that matter, why did Christ need to go into the garden? Why could he not have just been met on the mountain and arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and Pilate? Any thoughts on that? I mean beyond the obvious how how much we benefit from this how it really gives us insight into our lord but any thoughts on this what does it reveal to us pardon exactly exactly first i'd I'd say it's really to establish very necessary to establish for all time that jesus Obedience to his Father, both his active obedience, which is obeying all the law, the commands, festivals, everything. Passive obedience, what he was about to endure on the cross. But all of his obedience, everything Jesus did, was never forced upon him. 
It was all completely voluntary. It was a willing desire. It was a willing obedience. Laying down his life for the sheep was a wholehearted, not grudgingly, not half-hearted, not, I guess I have to, but in full and total willful obedience to his Father's will and for his love for us, right? And because it was only this type of death that was and is capable of saving sinners, right? I was thinking of Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8 says, In the spirit of the prophecy of Jesus coming, then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Of course, David speaking in this prophetical manner about Christ. But even in Hebrews 5, he talks about it. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Any thoughts on that? Any disagreements? Okay. Second, it may also be that this Gethsemane narrative is one given to us that we can hold in humble, worshipful amazement. What I mean is just what Haley said, to peer into the depths of Christ's human nature. The Lord and King of Kings sustainer of the universe, clothed in human flesh, who has come to serve the God-man, now as he faces redemptive death, was completely abased on the ground, as we're going to see. Face first, prostrate. But what kind of death did he die? What kind of death did Christ die? Was it physical Was there a separation of body from spirit? Yes, no? Nobody wants to raise their hand? Wally says yes, you're right. I mean, Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Did he die a spiritual death? Why? It's not not a challenging question. It's easy. Did he die a spiritual death? Pardon? Spiritual death. Did he die a spiritual death? Oh, and he wasn't a sinner, right? There you go. Amen. Right. Well, (laughs) that Jesus suffered the full equivalent of all that which his people would have suffered if no one had stood in their place, then yes, he would have died a spiritual death. But no, he had no sin in him. But in eternal death, yes. He did die an eternal death. I mean that during his life on earth, especially in Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus suffered that full equivalent of what we would have endured if no one had stood in our place. So he died that spiritual death in our stead, in our behalf. And we see that in this narrative, both, well, all of them, Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, that, you know, hell came to him in Gethsemane. And on, the, and on the cross in Golgotha. And he descended into it in the fullness of all its terrors. Third, this, this narrative gives us a really a good, greater understanding and a deeper love for really the mystery of the blessedness of his two natures. 
not only is human nature, but being divine, fully divine, fully God as, as well. He truly suffered in the fullness and weakness of his human nature in our likeness in far greater measure than, than we would ever experience and what we would ever attempt. But it's in Gethsemane that we begin to see him more pressed down, more emotionally impacted, more vulnerable than in any other account, especially what we see in Matthew. If you look prior to this, he did have a determination. He did make a, a cord, a whip of cords and drive out, yes, but we've never, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have never shown and expressed his agony, his vulnerability, like what we're going to see here in a minute. But there's also here a greater insight in, really into the theology of Christ's natures his suffering when, he, when we consider these two. For, for just in the context of, of this passage here in Matthew and the adjacent narrative passages here, we see what is, is been described as the working or the communication between his two natures, meaning that Jesus has just told his disciples, right back in verse 32, about his future resurrection. Could that have come just from his human nature? No, there was a divine communication to him. Not a divine attribute coming into his human nature because the two natures cannot mix, but there was a communication. Just as he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. So there was that divine nature communication to his human nature. And what we're seeing here in this hypostatic union is that communication of knowledge occurring from the divine to the human and not mixing. But it's quite another thing, and it's incorrect, too, if we were to say that a divine attribute had been communicated to his nature. He did not become omnipotent in his human form, right? He did not come omniscient, but he was receiving communication from his divine nature. So two distinct natures one being. So now, let's read Matthew 26. Would anybody like to take this passage and read it? Okay, brother. 36 to 46. Thank you. Get up, let us go, let us be 
restoring, behold, the one who was betrayed and betrayed for Amen. Thank you. So Jesus comes along this very familiar place, known to the disciples, probably known by many, Gethsemane. Anybody know what that means? Greek word for a Hebrew word, it means oil press, where they crush the olive oil to make the olive oil. Interesting. I'm not going to go into that. That's a study on its own. But likely a, a, a walled plot uh, of a garden, an olive grove, an, an orchard that was within an allowed walking distance for the Passover, you know, between just outside of Jerusalem, between there and the, and the Mount of Olives. But Christ was not hiding. He was not trying to shrink back, not making an effort to trick his betrayer, going somewhere unknown, but into a common known area. And he's coming into the garden in the fullness of his humanity. And with that, the full excruciating weight of the reality of what he was about to face, bearing down upon on his human soul. So intense as to appeal to a full surrender of his physical existence. That's how great this agony was. And upon his sinless, compassionate heart, and seeking, if possible, a way for this cup of his own loving Father's wrath to pass from himself. And from stepping back and looking at a, at a large picture overview, what we see here in Jesus' initial encounter of the fullness of this mediatorial work that he's now about to enter into in this hour, both in, in accordance with 1 Timothy 2.5, him being the one mediator, thinking about Philippians 2, 5, and 8, about his emptying himself, taking fully the form, the likeness, the weakness of sinless humanity, of being born of a woman, being born a God-man under the law, a bondservant according to these eternal decrees of the triune council, and now in the fullness of his humanity facing the reality of the, the utter depths and extents of his own Father's wrath to save us, to rescue us, to forgive us from our sins, to reconcile us to God. And here wrestling in, in very earnest supplication, that word that Christ uses there, to keep watch, it was, excuse me, back up in verse 36, sit here while I go over there and pray, is earnest worshipful supplication, not just make mention of a few prayers, a few requests, but for this wrath to pass, if possible, for this cup to pass. So Jesus and the eleven enter this gate into the garden. He asked the eight to sit here, probably by the entrance, keep watch and pray while we go over and pray. They go further into the garden and with such great sorrow, wanting his closest companions to be with him in trouble. He takes along Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder. They go a little bit further, deeper into the grove, a little bit more intimate area. It's interesting, we need to remember too, these are the same three who just probably a few weeks ago, what did they witness on another mountain? 
transfiguration. What did Peter want to do? Build tabernacles. Let's stay here. Let's build these. We can worship you three here. No need to go any further. You know, Peter's plans would have nullified salvation for us. That would have carried out. But now we see a much different Christ, don't we? Not in radiant glory, in sheer, utter agony. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The, the anguish here that we read of, and what we read that Jesus calls to these three closest disciples and friends to, to remain here and keep watch with me, he's clearly wanting them to share with him in this time and to feel their fellowship. But even these three were not close enough to him to provide any of the support and companionship in this time of prayer. This is a prayer he needed to pray on his own. But he asked them to at least keep watch, guard yourselves against temptation. And if we've experienced grief in our lives in times of sorrow, you know, not knowing what the doctor's you know, examination is going to result in, How blessed it is to have those closest to you, to spend time with you in prayer, to be with you, to care for you, provide meals for you, to comfort you, talk to you on the phone. But what we see here, Jesus expressing and experiencing here is of such a distressing nature, so troubling, and it's recorded with such an extremely strong term for anguish and misery. And the intensity, the intensity of this has come upon him in such a way that he was astonished by it. But what was this coming from? Was it, was it Israel's rejection of him, of Christ? No. Was it Judas' betrayal? No. The mockery, the injustice of the Jews and the Romans? No. These were all secondary, because remember, Jesus was not a victim. He was not a victim. And, and as horrifying and as painful, just to even think about being scourged and nailed to a cross, how, how horrible that would be for any of us to consider and face, these were nothing in comparison to what was fueling his grief and his agony, right? The horrifying recognition of this cup was what was driving his agony. What was he was facing in this cup? And what was this cup? Amen. Not the cup he just administered in the new covenant with his blood. Much different cup. This was the cup of God's wrath. The fullness of his righteous, fierce anger, fury, and punishment And think about the multitude of sins that that wrath was against just in this room. And multiply that for all the saints who have been redeemed by Christ. The magnitude of that wrath. I mean, Psalm 75.8 gives us a a very, again, finite glimpse for us. But read, (laughs) read, yes, read this. For, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord... And the wine foams. And there's a study in that by itself. But when the wine is foamed, when it is mixed well with all, whether it's spices or whatever it's contained, to put, 
bring about its fullest measure of potency. And God pours this out. And it says, surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. All of the sin that was mixed in the wine cup of God's wrath, its fullest of potency, was what Christ was facing in the reality of of this garden, of what, what was about to come on the cross. Realizing he would soon be the sole bearer of all sin, of his redeemed. Those he just prayed for to experience such love, such intimacy, such glory, such peace. Now he was having to face to bear the sin that these same beloved had in their lives, in their hearts. This is how radical, how serious sin has to be dealt with. But being the sacrificial lamb of God and in this willingness of his own to lay down his life, not being a victim again, I want to emphasize that, but willing to bear in our place this this unfathomable weight of our sin, he would bear the full force, the full weight, the fullest of darkness, pain, punishment, all that's associated, what's mixed in that cup of the wrath of his father. And, and, not, not that that was bad enough. He had to face the alienation of his father while he was being crushed in love and out of love, being that guilt offering for sinners that would, those who would be saved by faith. So in Jesus' humanity, the sheer weight of this reality was nearly too much, nearly too much for him to even survive. He did, praise God. For he was grieved to the point of death, and much less to even stand. That's what we read next. He was overwhelmed with such sorrow, such excruciating grief, what he's about to face, that on his face, verse 39, and he went a little beyond them, the three disciples, fell on his face and prayed. And Mark says he fell to the ground and began to pray. What does this say to us about the importance of prayer? of our lives and lives of the church. What can we learn to this, from this, by this? He prayed to his Father. We go back to Matthew 6. He prayed to his Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup, your cup of wrath, pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The importance of prayer in his life was so great as it should be in our lives that we are not just or not only praying during great times of sorrow, but we or extreme need, but at all times, without ceasing, as Paul says. We are to come, just as we were taught in Matthew 6, when we pray, not if, but when we come to pray, we come to the Father as the true God and pray in true prayer in a way that we are taught as children, coming to our Father, our Heavenly Father, but aware, definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of a holy God and to seek his will and help. I mean, look, look here at Christ, his beloved son, falling to the ground on his face before the Father, not defining a specific posture that we are to take, although we may have many times in our lives we are flat on our face before the Lord, but he's not play-acting. He's not doing this for emphasis to impress these disciples. It's a posture of his heart, that of the lowest posture 
in the most significant prayer where even, as I said earlier, the Lord and the sustainer of heaven and earth prostrate on the ground, deepest abasement in an attitude that we should seriously consider as it involves and as it also encompasses our entire being as we are all in desperate need, always of God's grace. We're never without need of God. But do we also realize and meditate deeply upon the depth of agony and the price and privilege Jesus has endured and purchased for us so that we may now come to and pray to his heavenly Father as our heavenly Father? Second, he, he sought the Father's will above his own. Very deliberate fashion, directing his request to be submitted to the authority, the glory, the perfect and good will of his Father. So in like matter, we too are also to follow in this example. In all situations, being desirous of God's will, of pleasing him, of his glory being fulfilled and manifested. Jesus was not putting on a TV drama drama here. His, his immaculate soul shrank in agony in the anticipation of bearing sin, of bearing wrath, of a, being alienated from his father, which was its greatest punishment. The, the cross for Jesus was a horror for him beyond anything any of us can imagine. Nevertheless, the Lord prayed, not my will, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. And he, as the word of God, even praying in his humanity and all faith and trusting himself that in everything about to transpire would be in full accord with the will of his heavenly Father. And so it is to be for us, just in Matthew 6 again. But what do we see in verse 40 and 41? He came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke adds a very interesting insight to this passage in his account. He says in Luke twenty-two forty-four to 45, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Could it be that those closest to him, who had just seen him and experienced him in his transfiguration, seeing now the agony and sorrow of Christ in his weeping, his prostrate prayers, experiencing now him now in this fashion, were they so impacted in such a way that their sorrow exhausted their flesh? I don't know what I would have thought to see Christ flat out on the ground weeping and, and sweating drops of blood in such agony of what he was about to face. Could it be that they it, it exhausted their flesh in such a way that they were overcome by any work of their own vo- volition to be in prayer, to heed his command, to, to stay and be watchful in prayer? I don't know. 
could be very well due to the weakness of their flesh, the very late hour of the night as well. But seeing their Lord in such agony, the rebuke is directed to Peter, but it includes them all. You know, in such a way to say that, that even in this dire situation, you cannot bear with me for one hour. You cannot give me an hour of your time to be in prayer with me. You know, are you so given in the flesh that spiritual matters are not worth watching over, praying through? So what Jesus is pointing to here is that tension within all of us, that inner tension, that struggle in our inner person, that flesh, our volition, our will, and our body with its inherent weaknesses. But are we so easily given to our physical weaknesses where we succumb to temptations from without and within rather than being watchful, aware of the dangers around us, not keeping our spirit and attitude of prayer. Do we not fear offending God, sinning against his holiness, that we would not submit ourselves to the spirit, to his word, to his truth? You know, with this comes a very strong warning to those who are not in Christ. All of this agony, all of this fear that Christ was beholding in his humanity was what is awaiting those who are outside of Christ. That wrath is over your head right now. And as Jonathan Edwards talks about that string dangling you over the pits of hell, this is what Christ was facing on your behalf This is why back in Psalm 2 it says, Do homage to the Son, kiss the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon, soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is why we see the agony of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. Out of love and willingness to die, to ransom those so they would not face that wrath that awaits from God the Father. Amen. Thank you for your time. Let's go worship the Lord.